is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Rule of Law series, and we've done several, Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and now we join Alex Cortez, who brings us our latest in the Rule of Law series. I tell more people today that if a dairy farmer goes to a psychiatrist and lays on that bench and that psychiatrist asks him questions before you're done, he's going to want to commit you. Because there's got to be something wrong with you. To be clear, this Maryland dairy farmer Randy Sowers is, including himself, in that category too. There absolutely has to be something wrong with somebody that deals with what we deal with every day for no more than we get out of it. We bought these farms three years ago. I mean, it's just going to be a burden on me and my kids to get these farms paid for. And then if their kids, you know, decide to stay in farming, one of these days they might, you know, get some benefit from them. But right now the farms are costing us more than we can make off of them. There's farmers dropping over. I think the bank sent 10 notices out last week of foreclosures. We've got a neighbor up here they foreclosed on in January. It's like land. You don't make farmers usually. I mean, farmers are born and raised, and they know what to do, and they have the heart to do it. I mean, most people, you know, wouldn't even consider doing what we do, and it's seven days a week. I mean, you don't get a break. For 38 years that I've been doing this, I've gotten up as early as 11.15 at night to milk. Wait, did he just say get up at night? Who gets up at night? Besides folks, of course, who have night shifts, but that's not Randy's situation. Well, I try to get to bed by 7 or 7.30. It's pretty hard when it's still light outside, but that's what I have to do. In the early years, I didn't have any help. I was getting at 11.15, but then I'd get done about 7 or 8 in the morning. Then I'd sleep till 10 o'clock and get up and get back to work. But the last 20 years, we've been getting up at midnight, me and my wife, and we milk the first shift of cows, and we usually get back home about 4 o'clock. We don't milk them all anymore, but we do milk the first shift because what I found out was over the years when I depend on somebody else to get in there early, they don't show up, and then it makes the whole day go bad. So. I just decided I might as well just do it myself. That way you get the day started and the people supposed to, you know, come after me, they better be there. I'm gonna go get them out of bed because I know where they are. Since we retired in December, we're gonna milk five mornings a week, but the other two we do farmer's markets. It's pretty nice through the winter though because we don't have the one Sunday market through the winter and I got to sleep in on Sunday morning. (laughs) Some idea of retirement. (laughs) And a couple of years ago, his government tried to throw him an early retirement party. So we were had a store on the farm, and we were doing farmer's market, and we were handling a lot of cash. And we just deposited it in the bank. I always wondered whether the government should ever show up someday. I wanted to know where all the cash came from, which didn't bother me because I knew it was all legal, so I didn't worry about it too much. Paid taxes on it, just like anything else. I mean, we were depositing it in the bank every week. Uh, This summer, we were doing probably five farmer's markets a week, and we were bringing in somewhere around that 10,000 mark every week. I mean, sometimes we went over that, and sometimes we had special events. And this one particular time, we had our festival, so we had a lot of money to deposit that week, and she went in. She being Randy's bride and partner, Karen. When I tried to deposit, it was 
twelve or fourteen thousand dollars or something like that, and the bank took it. But the teller told her, you know, it would help her out if you keep these deposits under ten thousand dollars, and she would not fill out paperwork. So that's what my wife did. Not knowing that a federal law called the Bank Secrecy Act requires banks to report all transactions $10,000 and up to the federal government. A law originally intended to make it easier to find folks who were laundering money, running illegal drug and gambling operations, and to charge them with much larger crimes. But it still was unwise for this bank teller to have the Sowers do this because technically, although rarely pursued, what they did was an illegal act on its own. What they call structuring. Structuring your deposits so that they're below the reporting requirement. So it was definitely every Monday she was paying, putting in $9,500 to $9,900 in cash in this account for 32 weeks. So we had a lawyer on staff at that time, and he was there that morning. February 29th, 2012. For some reason, he just left. And a store called me and said there was some government people over there that needed to talk to me. And I went in there was two treasury agents. You know, showing me their badges and they had their guns on and, you know, one talked to me about a bank account. So I tried to call my lawyer right away and he didn't answer the phone. So I, like I said, I still didn't have a problem because I didn't think I had anything to hide. So I went and sat down at the office and they started asking me questions. And I don't know what the questions were anymore except for the last one they asked me. He said, where'd you get all this cash? And they knew about the Sowers' cash because through a controversial legal maneuver called civil asset forfeiture, they had already seized his bank account with $63,000 in it at the time without even convicting him of a crime, which turns upside down a fundamental principle of the rule of law, innocent until proven guilty. Randy was made guilty before anything was proven. Although these IRS agents didn't tell Randy that they had seized his bank account, yet they still needed to trap him. And um, I said, well, you know, we do store and farmer's markets and you know, some weeks we get as much as twelve or $14,000. Well, they didn't ask me any more questions after that because that's the only answer, the question they needed me to answer to say that sometime I had more than 10 and I wasn't depositing it. The government agents tricked Randy and got him to admit to committing a crime that he didn't even know was a crime. Think about this question. Should the government be able to go after you for a crime that you don't know is a crime? And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Randy Sowers' story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our rule of law story on the federal government seizing the bank account of a dairy farmer, Randy Sowers, and for simply following his bank teller's request to make deposits below a $10,000 threshold that legally requires her to file lengthy paperwork to the government. Let's pick up where we last left off. Think about this question. Should the government be able to go after you for a crime that you don't know is a crime? Well, in 1994, the Supreme Court said that the answer was no. That the word willfully in the Bank Secrecy Act should be interpreted as a person who knew that it was illegal to structure payments below the reporting threshold. It wasn't simply enough to show that the defendant knew about the reporting requirement, which the Sowers didn't really know either. The teller just told them that it would help her avoid the paperwork. But this ruling was unacceptable to government prosecutors, and they convinced Congress to amend the wording of the Bank Secrecy Act so that they could prosecute Americans like Randy who don't know that structuring is illegal. So they had me on structuring because not that I knew there was a law that I said I had to deposit every cent I got every week. Maybe I spent it on something else that week. And it still didn't have more than $10,000, but it really didn't matter to them. And they were pretty nice, I guess nice. But they said, you know, we can see you're a legitimate business. We really don't think you're a laundry, money launderer or drug dealer or nothing like that. But now, since it's gone this far, you're going to have to go through the system to see if you can get your money back. Gone this far as their boss, then Maryland U.S. Attorney Rod Rosenstein, was already committed to the case. And there's no way that they thought that they could get him to back down on it. A judge had already issued a warrant for the seizure of Randy's bank account. Randy's money was this close to being theirs. Once they knew that I was not a drug dealer or a money launderer, they should have just gave me my money back and thanked me for my service to this country, and that would have been the end of it. But they don't, they got your money and they want it. And you know, over this period of time, it's not the IRS that gets a lot of that money. It's the local people that, you know, find this problem. They get their cut, too. Everybody gets their cut. That's how they make their budgets. So if they take all that money away, how are they going to pay their, you know, all these uh, things they get for because of all the structuring money? And the Department of Justice in Maryland is particularly active in pursuing this structuring money. In the fiscal year 2011, Maryland brought 14 of the nation's 99 structuring cases, 14% of them, even though they only make up 1.8% of the nation's population. So supposedly, Maryland citizens are eight times more likely to be committing crimes than the rest of us, or... Something else is going on. Rod Rosenstein is on the record as saying that anti-structuring efforts are, quote, an increasing area of emphasis for the Justice Department, and there has been an influx of resources to investigate it. Thus, I'd be disappointed if there wasn't an uptick in prosecutions. 
So my lawyer called whoever the prosecutor was on the case. Rod Rosenstein actually was the Department of Justice in Maryland at the time. So I'd like to see him go to jail now. I'll go visit him. But he called him. One of Rod's deputies. He said, well, that's the way it goes. I mean, we'll, we'll negotiate and, you know, we'll probably keep half that money. We might be able to negotiate that down some, but, you know, usually, you know, we'll negotiate some kind of a, a deal. Treating it all too casually, like it's negotiating something at a garage sale, not $30,000 of a business's of family's livelihood so somehow and i don't know how it all came down but there was another lawyer that showed up and he'd been you know working on this structuring thing for a long time but they all told me you know to keep my mouth shut and not tell anybody about it well i didn't call the newspapers but when i went to the farmers markets that weekend everybody knew that the government stole my money Everybody walked up the table and they wanted to know how my week goes. I told them the story. <laughs> and they, they, they couldn't believe it. So it wasn't too long after that that uh, I got a call from the Baltimore City Paper and he was questioning me about, you know, this, because he saw the docs come out of the federal court in Baltimore. And I said, you know, I'd love to tell you this story, but my lawyer said, until we get this thing settled, I better just not say nothing. That's what the government wanted everybody to say nothing so they can steal your money and nobody knows what's going on. So uh, he said, well, you know, if that's the way you want to look at it, but I'm going to do this story and it don't look good on your part if I write from what the government says. So his government's allowed to speak about him, but they say that he's not allowed to respond? Because people already thought we'd done something wrong. I mean, everybody, her, her parents thought we'd done something wrong. I think my parents might have <laughs> thought we'd done something wrong. And so I told him the whole story. So <clears throat> when we got our settlement papers, you know, we knew from the case on the Eastern Shore with the uh, Taylor family, we knew what their settlement was, but my settlement was different. I was going to admit that I did something wrong in the settlement, and I wasn't going to do it. So when my lawyer called them, he says, because your client went to the press. And he sent us an email that said it. Rosenstein's deputy, Stefan Casella, actually wrote an email that they were treated differently because, quote, Mr. Taylor did not give an interview to the press, admitting as clear as day that the government is acting according to a rule of vengeance, not according to the American promise of the rule of law. So he said wasn't going to do be any negotiating. You know, they were keeping close to $30,000 and it wasn't any negotiating now since I went to the press. If we would have fought them, if we would have fought them, they would have got, took the whole $360,000 we deposited in that checking account that year. So that was another thing they were holding against us. They said, you can fight us, but you know, you're not going to win, and then we're going to want $360,000. This is what you call blackmail. 
Either pay us 30000 or we're going to come after you for more, 360000 And by the way, fighting us in court will cost you a lot more than 30000 so you might as well just pay us right now. A pretty good business to be in if you're the government. They can do this all day long and do. But not a great business proposition if you're Randy and Karen. Especially when you're trying to do your actual business of farming. It's a no-win situation for them. They lose no matter what. So the Sours decided to forfeit $30,000 of their seized money to the government and try to move on with their lives. Farmers don't have time to go out and fight it. You can't fight them. You surely can't fight the government. But in the meantime, Institute for Justice had been working on some of these cases, and my lawyer got me in contact with them, and they came out and we had a meeting about it. But since my case was already settled, they just really wasn't a whole lot they could do. And when we come back, we're going to hear what happens when liberty lawyers get involved, and that's what the Institute for Justice's lawyers are. They protect people's property rights from the government. And always remember why the Constitution was formed, because we all know that most of our cops and prosecutors are good guys. But the bad ones, and boy, there were some bad ones here, folks. And you know it, right? You know it. When we come back, the law on behalf of the citizens starts to take action. Randy Sauer's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, give us your email address, and we will send you our five best stories of the week. And they'll be in transcript form, so you can read them or you can listen to them. And by the way, if you have your story about government power coming in on your life, if you've settled on an IRS form, if you settled for something when you didn't think you were guilty, Send those stories to us. We'll run them down because this is happening all over the country and it's happening a lot more than you think. Again, this is Our American Stories. When we return, the dairy farmer Randy Sowers shaken down by his own government, a guy just trying to get along every day like the rest of us. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we're back with the final portion of our rule of law story on the federal government seizing over $30,000 of dairy farmer Randy Sauer's money for simply following his own bank teller's request to make deposits below a $10,000 threshold. And now let's get back to the story. Farmers don't have time to go out and fight it. You surely can't fight the government. But in the meantime, Institute for Justice had been working on some of these cases. But since my case was already settled, they just really wasn't a whole lot they could do. But it was probably a year or two later, well, I got a call from the House Ways and Means Committee and said they were 
they were having a hearing on structuring. You want to know if I would testify. And this was only like two or three days before, you know, the it happened. And I think, you know, they were trying to get people to testify, but they're still afraid to testify. Understandably afraid of putting the government's target on their back again. Randy told Congress that he would testify in their big city only 90 minutes away from his home, but one that the Sours didn't like to go to. Oh, and very, we delivered milk down there a couple times. But, yeah, that wasn't fun. Yeah. So what we do, we milk and then we get in the car and we go down to the Institute for Justice uh, Arlington, Virginia. office in Arlington and we'd park and then sleep in the car for a couple hours so we didn't have to deal with the traffic. And then they would take us to the to D.C. for the hearings. Yeah, we ate high hops on the way down, but... It doesn't get any more American than that. Milking in the middle of the night, driving still in the middle of the night to avoid traffic. Then you got to make some time for IHOP. Then just a little bit of sleep in a parking lot while you don't shower before you testify before some congressmen who are in fancy suits and ties while you in a checkered short sleeve shirt no suit, no jacket, no tie. You take on your government. So me and two other guys testified, and that was an eye-opening experience too. And all those, all those congressmen and senators on that committee—I mean, they were beating that guy from the IRS. And, but he, he could, he could take it, and not ever answer a question. Just sit there like there was nothing, you know. Well, it really wasn't me that did this, you know. It was somebody else. But they just kept passing the buck. So um, Institute for Justice filed something to get our money back. They filed a petition for remission or mitigation, which are requests for the government to relieve them from a past judgment. Institute for Justice's petition was clear. No American should have their money taken from them just because they deposited it in so-called wrong amounts that they didn't know were wrong. And over 10 months passed without a single response from the government. So to ramp up pressure, the House Ways and Means Committee, in a bipartisan fashion, both Democrats and Republicans were outraged by this story, called back both Randy and the government to testify again. That second House Ways and Means Committee meeting... And they were demanding that guy from Justice and IRS to give us our money back. Like I said, they were sitting there like it was just water off their back. They didn't care. But behind the scenes, they did care. They were made to care. They were sweating the negative attention this brought them. And finally, we got our money back, and we were probably the first ones that's ever gotten any, their total amount back. I don't know. They said they apologized. They never apologized to us for anything. Five years. That's how long it took to get their money back. The Sours money could have been put to use making their business more money, hiring more workers and paying their workers more. But the government doesn't pay a fine or interest to account for this fact. 
to account for the fact that because of inflation, the Sours $30,000 became less than $30,000 while the government was holding it for them. So, I believe in God. I am where I am today because God tells me what to do and I listen to him. And the reason why, you know, I fight the government and nobody else will is two things in the Bible. Because God says, no hand held against you will prosper. And in the 23rd Psalm, it says, he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And that's what he does. It's just, you know, you have to win. Today, you hire lawyers, they're not out there to win. They're out there to get together and compromise and say, okay, if we do it this way, you'll make this much money and I'll make this much money. We don't have to fool around in court and file this paperwork, but we're all going to make money. But then nobody ever wins. And you have to win. This country that we know is not like it used to be. And it's going to be nothing is what it's going to be. It's going to be just like any other country. You're not going to have any rights. You're not going to run a business. And that's why Randy is so grateful that the Nonprofit Institute for Justice is there fighting to win. For him and for the over 200 other citizens whom the government had their backs up against the wall and couldn't afford to fight them until Institute for Justice took up their case at no cost to them and with no reward ever going to the nonprofit. Institute for Justice is a bunch of young lawyers that are concerned about this country. And I've met a good many of them and they all have the same outlook. I mean, they're not out there to make a lot of money. I, don't know, I have no idea how much money they make. I don't care. Most all their money comes in donations from people that like what they see and not people like me because I don't have a lot of money to give them. I mean, people think I have a lot of money. I mean, so now I live in a big house, but you know, the house came with the land we bought. You know, I didn't really want the house, it's too big. That's why I'm living there, just two of us, because nobody else wanted to live in it. But you know, the people, what people think about farmers is, is ridiculous because they think you're rich because you got big machines and it costs a lot of money and that's why you're not rich because you got to have those machines to do what you do. And great work as always, Alex. And what a story. By the way, a major bank CEO confidentially told us that the government has essentially forced them into being their own private snooping army with their compliance departments having to mine their customers' accounts for what the government might deem suspicious activity, giving them no choice but to report many innocent citizens like Randy Sowers to the government for investigation. The CEO said that this forced snooping sweeps up far more information than anything that the NSA did related to phone records, and yet has received almost zero attention. And that's what we're doing here in Our American Stories, bringing this story to your attention. There's also a big problem of selective prosecution here, the government has seized the bank accounts of innocent farmers like Randy Sowers, but refused to charge politicians like former New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, who was actually guilty of structuring his payments to prostitutes. And you bet he knew what structuring was. There's bipartisan legislation out there, folks, and it's sponsored by Democrats like Congressman Sheila Jackson Lee and Republicans like Senator Ted Cruz. And that doesn't happen too often. So that's how bad this prosecutorial abuse is, folks. Of course, that would change the statute 
so that you can't be charged for a crime that you don't know is a crime. It's called mens rea, folks. It's the heart of criminal law. If you don't know a crime's a crime, you can't be charged with it. This is Lee Habib, Randy Sauer's story, and thank goodness for the Institute for Justice. Look them up, folks. Give them some money. They do great, great work protecting property rights for Randy and maybe one day for people like you. Again, this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and you're listening to the Young Rascals, who started a two-week run at number one on the U.S. singles charts in 1967 with Groovin', and it still sounds great. And that brings us to this week in music history. Here's Jesse. This week in music history, 1971, Marvin Gaye released his 11th studio album, What's Going On?, The concept album, consisting of nine songs, tells the story from the point of view of a Vietnam veteran returning to the country that he had been fighting for. In 1977, Stevie Wonder started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with a tribute to Duke Ellington called Sir Duke, his sixth U.S. number one, making number two in the U.K.
1983, David Bowie went to number one on the U.S. singles chart with Let's Dance, featuring blues guitarist Stevie Ray Vaughan. It was Bowie's first single to reach number one on both sides of the Atlantic. The single was one of Bowie's fastest selling, entering the U.K. singles chart at number five on its first week of release, staying at the top of the charts for three weeks. Soon afterwards, the single topped the Billboard Hot 100, becoming Bowie's second and last single to reach number one in the U.S. And in 2016, a guitar that Elvis Presley was given by his father sold for $334,000 at an auction in New York City. Well, I quit my job down at the car wash. I left my mama a goodbye note. By sundown, I left Kingston with my guitar under my coat. I hitchhiked all the way down to Memphis, got a room at the YMCA. For the next three weeks, I went a hunting them nightclubs looking for a place to play. Well, I thought my picking would set them on fire, but nobody wanted to hire a guitar man. Well, I nearly about starved to death down in Memphis. I run out of money and luck. So I bought me a ride down to Macon, Georgia on an overloaded poultry truck. I thumbed on down to Panama City, started picking out some of them all-night bars. I hoping I could make myself a dollar making music on my guitar. I got the same old story to them all night peers. There ain't no room around here for a guitar man. We don't need a guitar man, son. And born this week in music history, 1941, the one and only Bob Dylan. He's won many awards through his career, including the 2016 Nobel Prize in Literature, and to date, 18 Grammy Awards. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, threw the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you. People call, say beware, doll, you're bound to fall, you thought they were all kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud. About having to be scrounging your next meal. How does it feel? How does it feel to be without a home? Like a complete unknown. Like a But you know you only used to get juiced in it Nobody's ever taught you how to live out on the street And now you're gonna have to get used to it You say you never compromise With a mystery tramp But now you realize He's not selling 
into the vacuum of his eyes and say, do you want to make a deal? In 1965, blues harmonica player, singer, and songwriter Sonny Boy Williamson died. Van Morrison, Aerosmith, The Who, The Animals, Yardbirds, and Moody Blues all covered his songs. According to the Led Zeppelin biography Hammer of the Gods, while Sonny Boy Williamson was touring the UK in the 1960s, he set his hotel room on fire while trying to cook a rabbit in a coffee percolator. Help me. I can't do it all by myself. God help me, baby. I can't do it all by myself. You know, if you don't help me, darling, I'll have to find myself somebody else. And in 1995, This Week in Music History, the earliest known recordings of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards from 1961 was sold at Christie's in London for $85,425. Just five years after this recording, in 1966, the Rolling Stones were at number one on both the U.S. and U.K. singles charts with Painted Black. And that is This Week in Music History. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Oh, 
This is Our American Stories. We wanted to bring you the story of a guy you know, but don't know as well as you're about to get to know him. And his name is Tony Dungy. And if you're a football fan, and even if you're not, you know that he was the first African-American head coach to win a Super Bowl when his Colts defeated the Chicago Bears in 2007 in the Super Bowl. By the way, those were two African-American coaches and also two good Christian men. And Lovey Smith was the other coach. And... Well, he gave a Hall of Fame speech because he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, Tony Dungy, in 2016. And we love to bring you talks and speeches that reveal the character and nature of folks. We did it with John Glenn uh, when, he was, when he was buried. We went back into the archives to some of the speeches he had given at the Smithsonian to bring his voice to life so you could hear from him. And you're about to hear Coach Tony Dungy talking about his life in this speech. And it starts... By coach remembering his parents. When I got the news, my first thoughts were of all the people God placed in my path to help make this possible. It started in Jackson, Michigan, and I couldn't have had a better upbringing. I'm just sorry that my parents, Wilbur and Cleo May Dungy, aren't alive to see this because they would be so proud. My dad always preached to us to set our goals high and to not complain about negative circumstances. Just look for a way to make things better. My mom taught us that as a Christian, your character, your integrity, and how you honored God were so much more important than your job title. One of her favorite Bible verses was Matthew 16:26. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I know that she's happy to know that her son never forgot that verse. Wilbur and Clee May. Wilbur and Clee May, the parents. First thing Tony Dungy thanks. And then he thanked his coaches. Had a lot of excellent coaches growing up in all sports, but I really have to thank my high school football coach, Dave Driscoll. I came to him as a 14-year-old who felt like I knew it all. And Coach Driscoll helped me become a good player, but more than that, he helped me become a leader. He taught me how to think the game. Woody Woodenhofer and Tom Moore were the coaches who recruited me to the University of Minnesota, and I thank them for impacting my life. Woody would end up coaching me with the Steelers. And Tom Moore, you heard Marvin talk about Tom. Well, Tom rode with me on the very first plane ride I ever took my recruiting trip to Minnesota when I was scared to get on the plane. He was my quarterback coach as a freshman, and then 33 years later, he was our offensive coordinator 
in Super Bowl 41 with the Colts, and he's still coaching now, and I owe him a lot. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Woody. And a big thank you to our head coach of the Gophers, Cal Stoll, who told us as freshmen that he expected us to be uncommon, not just average. And that thought has stuck with me throughout my life. And it's a great thought to be uncommon and not average. After some great formative years, Tony Dungy's career, his life, hit a speed bump. Well, after four years of playing quarterback at Minnesota, I expected to continue doing that in the NFL, but it didn't happen. In 1977, even though the draft was 12 rounds long then, I didn't get picked, and I was devastated. But it just is one example of God's plans being better than our plans. Woody and Tom were now in Pittsburgh coaching, and they convinced Chuck Knoll to give a guy who'd never played any position but quarterback a shot at another position. I have to say that $2,000 signing bonus I got didn't last long, but I ended up gaining a lot more than money. Chuck Knoll would play a huge, huge role in my life and teach me so much about the game of football. But in our first meeting, he said that even though we were now professionals, and we're being paid to play the game, we shouldn't make it our life. There was more to life than just football, and he wanted to help us find our life's work. Coach Noel, Art Rooney Sr., and Dan Rooney lived that out every day in the way they led the Steeler organization. Dungy talks about how one man in particular stood out in the Steelers organization. There were so many great players on that team. A lot of them up here right now as I speak today, and they all had an impact on me, but none of them more so than Donnie Shell. Donnie took me under his wing, and I learned so much from him, not just about playing safety, but about being a Christian athlete, a husband and father, and a teammate. Thank you, Donnie. And then Dungey remembers many setbacks and opportunities on and off the field. After getting a Super Bowl ring my second year, I experienced another disappointment, getting traded. But again, the Lord was using disappointment to help me grow. With the San Francisco 49ers, I got to play for Bill Walsh and see another system. And Eddie DeBarlo was instilling the same principles in his team that I'd seen with the Steelers, doing everything in a first-class and family way. My playing career only lasted one more year, and suddenly, at 25 years old, I was looking for a real job. That's when Coach Noel called me and gave me that chance to start my life's work. Coming back to Pittsburgh was the beginning of my coaching journey, but there was another blessing in store for me, meeting my beautiful wife, Lauren, the love of my life, my biggest supporter, and my greatest blessing. And when we come back, it's almost a biography listening to this speech, and that's why we love to play him. In his words, and you hear him referring to his his Lord, and when we do and when we can, we focus on people's faith. And when it's not there, that's fine too, but we don't leave it out when it is there. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Tony Dungy's Hall of Fame speech, A Day in the Life, a glimpse into the man 
who was the first African-American to ever win the Super Bowl. More on Tony Dungy from Tony Dungy. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The first wave of children came soon after we got married. Tierra, Jamie, and Eric's lives were typical of assistant coaches' kids. Moving every few years, leaving friends, making new friends, and they did it without complaining. Now our second wave of kids, Jordan, Jade, Justin, Jason, Jalen, Jaden, and Jayla, well they had a little more stability. Jordan and Jade were able to experience some of the perks of being the head coach's kids. But they also had their disappointments, like when Dad couldn't come to a birthday party or school performance. But all ten of them know I love them, and I hope they know how much I appreciate their sacrifices. And that's Tony Dungy talking about his family. He had spoken about his bride before we uh, left you off in the last segment. And now we continue with this great speech by Tony Dungy. He was inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. And periodically, we love to take you back to old speeches, old essays, old movies, because if you didn't bump into it, it's not old. And this reveals so much of Tony Dungy's character in this Hall of Fame speech. Here, he recalls some of the steps along the path to becoming a head coach. Well, getting to that head coaching job was a long journey from Pittsburgh to Kansas City to Minnesota. 15 great years and a lot of wonderful people. But I have to thank two people in particular. During my four years with the Vikings, Tom Lanphier, our chaplain, met with me weekly going through the book of Nehemiah to give me a picture of biblical leadership that I would use to guide my teams. Thank you, Tom. And Denny Green, Denny went out of his way to teach me the responsibilities of being a head coach. Taught me about things on and off the field. He did it because he wanted to see me become a head coach. And he wanted me to be prepared and be ready when that opportunity came. And I love him for that. But as much as I appreciate that, The thing I'm most grateful to Denny for is that he made sure his assistant coaches had quality time with our families. He let my boys come to camp and be around their dad. He made sure we were able to be husbands and fathers as well as coaches. And just as Coach Noel had done, Denny showed me that you could win doing it that way. I thanked him many, many, many times over the years, but I really wish I could thank him one more time tonight for everything he did to help me take that final step. And who your mentors are matters, folks. 
And if you're lucky enough to stumble upon the right ones, they can change your whole life, your whole worldview. Tony Junji was lucky to stumble into Denny Green, but he also picked that chaplain. So some by design, some by chance. But they shaped this man deeply. Here's Dunji finally talking about getting the gig he'd always dreamed of. And that step came in 1996 when I got the job I thought I'd never get, head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I thank Rich McKay, who headed up the search, and Brian Joel and Ed Glazer for their confidence in me. And I'm especially grateful to Malcolm Glazer, who was so supportive and so loving and gave me so much practical advice. Our family enjoyed a phenomenal six years in Tampa. 1997 was probably my favorite year in coaching. We made the playoffs for the first time in 15 years, and the Bucks fans went crazy over their team. And those fans still remain special to me to this day. Dungy remembers another big setback, another big opportunity. Losing my job in 2002 after a playoff loss was another painful disappointment. But again, God used it to lead me to a blessing. That's when Jim Irsay called and gave me the opportunity to join him and Bill Polin in Indianapolis. Like Rich McKay, Bill had an exceptional eye for talent, and he built a tremendous football team. We had a lot of fun over the next seven years, highlighted by that Super Bowl 41 victory. But I'll tell you, the most satisfying part was doing what Jim talked about in that first phone conversation, connecting with our community and making the Colts an integral part of the Indianapolis landscape. I'd like to thank you big time, Jim and Bill, and the Coles fans. You made us feel like native Hoosiers, and our family loves you. And Dungy then went on to thank many other people, the assistant coaches, the staff, the players, and one player in particular, Peyton Manning. But the biggest reason I'm here tonight is the people I was able to work with during my 13 years as a head coach. I had fantastic assistant coaches in Tampa and Indianapolis, and some awesome staff people. I wish I had time to recognize them individually because they were the big reason why we were successful. You don't win in the NFL without players, and was I ever blessed with players? Again, I'm not going to recognize them all individually, but so many of them are here tonight, and I'm going to ask them to stand while I talk about them. There's a bunch up here on this podium I'd like to stand, guys who played for me. There's some in my section. They're in Marvin's section. If you played for me, I'd love for you to stand up so I could recognize you. As you see, several of them are in the Hall of Fame already. Others are certainly going to follow them. And there's no doubt... These guys are responsible for me being up here today. I thank you guys. I love you, every one of you. Thank you. And some guys pretend to not take the credit, and other guys don't want the credit. And you can tell, if you were watching that, that Dun, Dun G, well, he didn't like taking credit for any of this stuff. 
Last but not least, Dungey had to turn his attention to the trailblazers, the African-American men in this sport who paved the way for him to be, again, the very first African-American to coach an NFL Super Bowl winner. And finally, I'd like to say a special thank you to 10 men. Willie Brown, Buck Buchanan, Ernell Durden, Bob Ledbetter, Elijah Pitts, Jimmy Ray, Johnny Rowland, Al Tabor, Lionel Taylor, and Alan Webb. Now those names might not be familiar to you, but those were the African-American assistant coaches in the NFL in 1977, my first year in the league. It was a small group of men, just 10 of them, if you can believe that, 10 African-American assistant coaches in the entire NFL. Many of them never got the chance to move up the coaching ladder like I did, but they were so important to the progress of this league. Those men were like my dad. They didn't complain about the lack of opportunities. They found ways to make the situation better. They were role models and mentors for me and my generation of young African-American players like Ray Rhodes, Terry Rubisky, and Herm Edwards. We were in the 80s trying to decide whether we could make coaching a career or not. Without those 10 coaches laying the groundwork, the league would not have the 200-plus minority assistant coaches it has today. And we would not have had Lovey Smith and Tony Dungy coaching against each other in Super Bowl 41. So tonight, as I join Fritz Pollard as the second African-American coach in the Hall of Fame, I feel like I'm representing those 10 men and all the African-American coaches who came before me and paved the way. And I thank them very, very much. And there you have it, Tony Dungy's speech. We're going to play this last clip now. Here is how he closed things out. The Lord has truly led me on a wonderful journey through 31 years in the NFL, through some temporary disappointments to some incredible joys. I cherish every single relationship that I was able to make over those 31 years, and I'll always be grateful to the National Football League for giving me my life's work. Thank you, and God bless. Don't complain. Make the situation better. His mom and dad told that to him. These 10 great African-American assistant coaches, and again, there were only 10 when he came into the league. There are now 200-plus. America still trying and working hard to overcome its original sin, and working hard it is. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and what we're about to listen to is a piece done by Reason TV entitled 
Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. It's written and hosted by Ted Bollocker. Sacre Bleu! The story chronicles how the American free market spurned competition in the wine world. America, which was once known for having the type of wine that goes good with a hamburger, ended up to the amazement of the world, and especially the French, surpassing all of their competition. Let's take a listen. France has long ruled the world of wine. Sure, since at least the mid-20th century, the U.S. has tried to match the sophistication of French wines. But it's been a tough sell. Say hello to Gallo. Hello to Gallo wine. When wine elves failed to convey sophistication, American winemakers turned to classy British actors. I like the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. If you don't recognize the Thunderbird label, it's because the bottle is usually covered with a brown paper bag. This champagne doesn't come from France. Even the legendary Orson Welles couldn't close the gap with the French. Take two. Ah, the French. These boozy outtakes confirmed that Yankee wines were good for just one thing. Ah, the French. Getting blitzed. Get rippled. American wines deserve to be paired with food of equal sophistication, says French wine expert Jean-Noël Formeau. Something like the hamburger. Because the hamburger... It's not a sophisticated dish in the sense of cooking. It's greasy, it's messy. Hamburger Nation could never make wine like France, so it must have sounded like a cruel joke when, in 1976, a one-of-its-kind competition was arranged. There was a tasting in Paris that uh, French wines compared to California wines. Mighty France versus lowly California in a blind taste test judged entirely by French wine connoisseurs. They would sample some of the best wine from each location and vote for their favorite red and their favorite white. Formos says the French were confident, even arrogant. (laughs) It's going to be so easy. Only it wasn't so easy. The impossible happened. Hamburger Nation won top honors for both red and white. And France took a, a slap in the face. I was uh, feeling like I was born again. Mike Gergich made the winning white. It was displayed at the Smithsonian, and his story was told in a popular book. The Paris tasting made him a legend, but back then even Gergich couldn't believe he had won. I said, are you sure it's me? <laughs> How could this American, an immigrant who fled communist Yugoslavia, shock the world? Yes, California's natural gifts and his own talent were essential, but so was something else the freedom to create wine his own way. Different when I came from communism, where it was not freedom. <laughs> I have used American opportunity. Gergic was raised in a small village in Croatia. He developed a taste for wine at a very young age. To be honest, my mama switched me from breast milk at the age of two and a half to wine. And I liked when Gergich arrived in California, he was nearly penniless, but he knew he was in the right place. I already felt that there is a kind of a vibration in the air that people are trying to compete. One of the great things that we do in America, and you hope it doesn't go away, is we have this great sense of adventure. Squire Friedel owns Sonoma County's Glen Lyon Winery. He says California's history of freewheeling winemaking helped revolutionize the craft. We have a great sense of let's try something new, let's try something different. It's different in France, he says, where the government exerts control over many aspects of winemaking. They even have tasters that come out uh, from the government. Formeau was an official taster for the French government. Not a bad gig. I go to different chateaus and I taste, and the wine passes or doesn't pass. 
He says the rich tradition that has produced such revered wine also has a downside. The beauty of France is we have a lot of traditions. The problem of France, we have so many, we cannot do anything. That's just that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. California progressed from Thunderbird to Gurgich's award-winning wine in just a couple of decades. The centuries-old chasm between French and American winemakers was closing quickly. The French were interested to understand what was going on in California. Hamburger Nation could teach the French something about wine? How fun for Friedel to ponder, given what he used to do for a living. I was the Ronald McDonald, the second one. That was wonderful. The day I signed the contract is the day that we put the house on the market. Acting in commercials gave Friedel the financial security to start his own winery. And he remembers how important the Paris tasting was for the young California industry. And that, of course, put us on the map. Uh, where no one could make fun of us anymore as the younger brother. Uh, but I think it was the 80s where everything started to get ramp up very quickly. We all started to get it. Up to 1980, America has never been the land of uh, great food or great wine. So in 1980, Formeau headed west. My job was to uh, come to California for six months. And it's people who say to spy. So what did the wine spy find in California? an atmosphere of innovation. And because of that, America has been able to create many things that have changed, really, the way wine is made today. Innovations like stainless steel tanks or malolactic fermentation, a process Gurgic helped develop, which counteracts tartness in wine. It's extremely difficult in France, compared to here, that you are always tied in some rules that are either government rules or quote-unquote family rules not having the rules and regulations that they have in much of Europe, and particularly in France, were able to experiment. Friedel recalls his first experiments. First wines just sucked. They were not very good at all, but you learn. First he planted Cabernet grapes, but eventually he discovered the climate was a tad too cool for them. He switched to Syrah, and since then his Syrah has been served in some of America's finest restaurants. What if he tried this grape switcheroo in France? You can't do it. You just can't do it. In France, it'd be illegal for Friedel to switch to Syrah, Pinot Noir, or any other unapproved grape. If I want to grow Pinot Noir, I want to be able to grow Pinot Noir. Too bad. The French government decides which grapes may be planted where. The government regulates everything from alcohol content to pruning methods. The result? It's harder for French winemakers to innovate. The French wine industry is uh, floundering. France still exports more wine, but look at how American exports have grown since the 1976 tasting. The U.S. and other New World winemakers are gaining market share and challenging French dominance. I think France has been lost a little bit for a while. Formeau grew weary of French rules and traditions. I don't like that weight of tradition, but on the top of that, they don't like people like me who come with new ideas. It doesn't go with the establishment. What was supposed to be a six-month reconnaissance mission has turned into nearly 30 years in a new land. Formeau quit his job as an official taster for the French government, and as co-founder of Chateau Potel, he's now a celebrated wine entrepreneur in California. Here I felt free and I could be successful, and that's why I've been doing here what I couldn't have done in France. But don't forget about France. Formos says global competition has forced French winemakers to step up their game, and that means better wine for all of us. This is Our American Stories, and we thank Reason TV for that piece. Go to Reason.com, and the piece was called Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. And by the way, we love Sacre telling... Bleu. Sacre Bleu! And we love telling stories about, well, innovation, competition, and free enterprise 
and just what freedom does. And the country that produces the great hamburger also does produce great wine. That's right. And that's Jesse. He can't help himself. This is Our American Stories. And listen to all that we do by going to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Dodd-Frank series, Where Have You Gone, George Bailey, is terrific on this same kind of subject. Also, the work we've done with hair braiding and credentialing, where the government's coming in and micromanaging our lives. Look what it's done to French wines, and look what it's doing for American wines, not having that level of intervention. Again, this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's that time of year again, folks, commencement season. What a great time to celebrate folks finishing up high school, college, our young people, closing one door, opening up another for many parents. Well, sort of bittersweet. The kids are going to go off on their own and see how they can forge a life. And we love covering graduation speeches. Steve Jobs, Will Ferrell, Conan O'Brien, Denzel Washington, Admiral William McRavens at the University of Texas was one of our favorites. We have a couple of real turkeys, too, which you'll want to hear. We play them every year throughout graduation season. And right now, one of our favorites. This speech was given by Fred Rogers at Dartmouth College in 2002. He didn't graduate from Dartmouth, but he attended for two years. He ended up graduating in 1948 from Rollins College with a B.S in music in 1951. And here's Rogers starting off talking about how things have changed. What a privilege to be with you all. And since I've arrived here in Hanover, many people have greeted me by saying, it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. I'm not sure if Jean Shaheen was even born yet. But very few people would have guessed that within 50 years, a woman would be governor of New Hampshire. Yes, when, when I was here, the first word of the alma mater was men. Men of Dartmouth, give a rouse. 
Well, now the first word is dear. Some things change for the better. Mr. Rogers goes on to share one of his favorite stories. Our world hangs like a magnificent jewel in the vastness of space. Every one of us is a part of that jewel, a facet of that jewel. And in the perspective of infinity, our differences are infinitesimal. We are intimately related. May we never even pretend that we are not. Have you heard my favorite story that came from the Seattle Special Olympics? Well, for the 100-yard dash, there were nine contestants, all of them so-called physically or mentally disabled. All nine of them assembled at the starting line, and at the sound of the gun, they took off. But not long afterward, one little boy stumbled and fell and hurt his knee and began to cry. The other eight children heard him crying. They slowed down, turned around, and ran back to him. Every one of them ran back to him. One little girl with Down syndrome bent down and kissed the boy and said, this will make it better. And the little boy got up, and he and the rest of the runners linked their arms together and joyfully walked to the finish line. They all finished the race at the same time. And when they did, everyone in that stadium stood up and clapped and whistled and cheered for a long, long time. People who were there are still telling the story with great delight. And you know why. Because deep down, we know that what matters in this life is more than winning for ourselves. What really matters is helping others win too. Even if it means slowing down and changing our course now and then. Mr. Rogers encourages the students to learn from all of those around them, whether they be those with special needs, or world-famous cellists. I was once invited to sit in on a master class of six young cellists from the Pittsburgh Youth Symphony Orchestra. The master teacher was Yo-Yo Ma. Now, Yo-Yo is the most other-oriented genius I've ever known. His music comes from a very deep place within his being. And during that master class, Yo-Yo gently led those young cellists into understandings about their instruments, their music, and their selves, which some of them told me later they'd carry with them forever. 
I can still see the face of one young man who had just finished playing a movement of Brahms' cello sonata when Yo-Yo said, nobody else can make the sound you make. Of course, he meant that as a compliment to the young man. Nevertheless, he meant that also for everyone in the class. Nobody else can make the sound you make. Nobody else can choose to make that particular sound in that particular way. We are all inspired by someone or something, and here Mr. Rogers makes sure the Dartmouth students remember who's helped them along the way. I have a lot of framed things in my office which people have given to me through the years. And on my walls are Greek and Hebrew and Russian and Chinese. And beside my chair is a French sentence from Saint-Exupéry's Little Prince. It reads, L'essentiel est invisible pour les yeux. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Well, what is essential about you? And who are those who have helped you become the person you are? Anyone who has ever graduated from a college, anyone who has ever been able to sustain a good work, has had at least one person, and often many, who have believed in him or her. We just don't get to be competent human beings without a lot of different investments from others. It's not the honors and the prizes and the fancy outsides of life which ultimately nourish our souls. It's the knowing that we can be trusted, that we never have to fear the truth, that the bedrock of our lives from which we make our choices is very good stuff. And here Rogers ends his speech by reading the lyrics of one of his songs. There's a neighborhood song that is meant for the child in each of us. And I'd like to give you the words of that song right now. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. The way you are right now. The way down deep inside you. Not the things that hide you. Not your caps and gowns. They're just beside you. But it's you I like. Every part of you. Your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new. I hope that you remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like. It's you yourself. It's you. It's you I like. And what that ultimately means, of course, is that you don't ever have to do anything sensational 
for people to love you. When I say it's you I like, I'm talking about that part of you that knows that life is far more than anything you can ever see or hear or touch. That deep part of you that allows you to stand for those things without which humankind cannot survive. Love that conquers hate, peace that rises triumphant over war, and justice that proves more powerful than greed. So in all that you do, in all of your life, I wish you the strength and the grace to make those choices which will allow you and your neighbor to become the best of whoever you are. Congratulations to you all. And that was Fred Rogers' commencement speech, and that's what we do here. We celebrate every facet of American life. In a way, his story, his Dartmouth commencement speech of 2002, here on Our American Stories. You, I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you, I like.